Consciousness is always evolving and our present perception becomes our conscious reality. Is life happening for you or is it happening to you? A life of authenticity is a life of skillfully practicing your values. You are perfectly human and even when we stumble, we still stumble forward. If you seek truth and move in love, then your family. I invite you to have a seat at our table. You are listening to an authentic outlier, the nocturnal therapist himself, Harry Turner. So I'm going to be vulnerable and authentic and toss myself out there one more time. And I want to tell you about a friend, you know, that I grew up with and really our experience, our shared experience together. I had a friend, her name was Holly. Holly, she was an awesome friend, you know, extremely sweet, you know, south of the earth, you would say. <laughs> and this was my sophomore year in, in college going to LSU. And, and, and by the way, I was welcomed to LSU uh, the first week by a bunch of uh, fraternity Caucasian brothers passing by in a pickup truck calling me the N-word. That's just one of my experiences. But anyway, this is my sophomore year, this particular experience I want to highlight. Sophomore year, my friend Holly, my dear friend Holly, who has a vehicle because uh, she had a vehicle, I believe, since she was in high school. Another thing that was, you know, very, uh, you know, that, that really caught my eye, you know, that across the demographic line, you know, you could see this. You can see more of my Caucasian brothers and sisters driving to high school, even in cars, you know, as opposed to a lot of us, a lot of uh, African-American brothers and sisters. But anyway, college, I still didn't have a car. And so I used to ride, catch rides with my uh, my parents, uh, my cousins, you know, Haywood, you know, and my friends, Travis and Holly, and or sometimes a Greyhound bus. So uh, this particular experience, I'm riding back from LSU on the weekend with my friend Holly, my sweet, sweet friend Holly. She really is an awesome person. Holly is a Caucasian female, blonde hair, blue eyes. Again, amazing burst in personality. People just automatically, magnetic personality. People love her. And, you know, it's it's she really is a, a sincerely sweet person. So we ride back, me and my friend Holly from Baton Rouge, and she decides she wants to stop at Esplanade Mall in Metairie, which is part of the greater New Orleans area, but it's Metairie or Kenner. So we had Esplanade Mall in Metairie, and we are walking past the fire department. I'm not sure which fire department it was, to be honest with you, so I'm not going to throw out any titles or names. But we were walking past the fire department, the fire department. They were doing a fundraiser, and there's about 12 my Caucasian brothers in these firemen outfits consisting of the unit who are, who were trying to raise funds for the department. As I'm walking past me and my friend Holly, I noticed that the, they stopped doing what they were doing. You know, they were all casually engaging in, in various conversations amongst each other. They stopped doing what they were doing and they began to look at me, me and Holly walking together. Immediately it caught my eye because I was accustomed to this, you know, this, this just being seen with a white female would evoke the rage of some of our Caucasian brothers. And so me and Holly, we walked through the mall and uh, we passed through the fire department and I noticed that they're staring at us. And so I say, Holly, I don't think you should be walking as close as you are to me because We've caught the attention of the fire department that's raising funds. 
She said, what do you mean you caught the, uh, we caught the attention? I said, Holly, they don't want to see a black man walking beside a white woman, you know, and then you're blind and you got blue eyes. You know, they, they're taking you of, as, as the pinnacle of what it is to be a, a woman, you know, and me as some, some filthy whatever, you know. They don't want to see us walking side by side. They don't know that we're not dating. They just don't want to see us together. Holly said, whatever. And then she looked and she saw the rage in their eyes. She she saw the racial slurs that they were tossing at me with their gaze. And she said, oh, my God, they really are staring at us. And she grabbed my arm and put her head on my shoulder, which sent a chill through my spine. <laughs> and so I said, Holly, you playing around, but you can't do this. I know this is games to you. This is new to you, but this is life for me. You can't you can't play like that, you know, because they're not going to hurt you. They'll hurt me. But anyway, we make it out the mall, you know, and and again, everybody stopped. All the firemen stopped and just looked at us, just just disgusted, repulsed. I could smell and feel the racism exuding, just just permeating their pores. So we make it out of there. We we continue down to my hometown. I'm riding with Holly and we're talking about that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. Holly is driving because I'm catching a ride. Holly sees a police unit, but it's a truck police unit. These these trucks don't typically stop people. At least back then, they didn't really stop people. And so Holly looked at the truck, and she said, you think they'll stop us if I pass them up? Because she was already speeding. So she's talking about going even faster. I said, Holly, do not pass them up. They will see me sitting in the passenger seat. We will be stopped. White men do not like to see black men like me around White ladies, white women like you. Oh, Harry, you're crazy. That, that, that doesn't exist. That's back in the 60s. They don't do that. She goes right past the truck because she doesn't have to worry about the rage of a bigot. She doesn't have to worry about that, but I do. So she passes the truck. <laughs> my friend Holly, my sweet, sweet, sweet friend Holly, she passes the truck. And, of course, they put on their lights and they stop us. They stop us. Now, Holly already knew that she didn't have a license, which I already knew as well. But, you know, this is my friend Holly. Her people are well known. Her family is well known, you know, and she doesn't have any run ins with the law. You know, that, that period. She doesn't. The law is there to protect her, to serve her, to protect and serve her. That's what the law was there for. And so she zooms right past the police truck and we get pulled over. We get pulled over and the officer asks Holly to get out of the vehicle. Holly goes to the back of the vehicle. My dear friend, Holly, my Caucasian sister, who I love dearly. She goes to the back of the vehicle and proceeds to talk to two police officers for roughly, I don't know, 20 minutes, maybe, you know, 20, 30 minutes. I don't know how long it was, you know, but I think it's about 20, 30 minutes it lasted. In between time, they walked, uh, one of the deputies walked over to the passenger side where I was and asked me for my license. I told them I didn't have it, which was a lie. I did have my license, but I wanted them to do whatever they wanted to do. I didn't want them to treat me any differently than they would any other black man, because that's all they saw was a black man. So they went back, talked to Holly a little bit longer, and then finally released her and allowed her to go back into her vehicle. And, and by the way, when she stepped out of the vehicle, her first the first action that she did was say she didn't even wait to be really wait to be like escorted out of the vehicle or, you know, like 
calmly get out of the vehicle. She jumped out of the vehicle and said, hey, my name is Holly, such and such, and I am, you know, the Orange Queen or whatever, you know. So she listed the title that way that they knew who her people were immediately. So they talked to her for about 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, and they release us. We get back in the car, and Holly is just flabbergasted. She is stunned. She is shocked. She said, Harry, all they wanted to know was about you. All they cared about was why was I riding with you? Why were you riding with me? They asked me if I was any in any danger. <laughs> My friend, Holly, who I grew up with, who I hitched a ride with from LSU to my hometown, you know, college student, never been in trouble before. The officers wanted to make sure that my wonderful friend Holly was not in danger because she was riding with a black man. And they questioned her for 30 minutes, not about the fact that she didn't have a license, not about the fact that she passed him up, that she was speeding. They didn't care about any of that. Because for her, the law is there to protect and to serve. And their idea of protecting the serve is protecting the serve anybody that looks like Holly. Not me. I'm the threat. I'm the danger. My my grandfather's grandfather was born a slave. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So his father actually uh within the first ten years, the Emancipation Proclamation. I'm talking about ninety years between my great great grandfather and me. <laughs> Ninety mm-hmm. years. That's how close we were to working of slavery. And so I grew up in the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of my teen years say that, Mr. Turner, how are you, sir? I grew That's up in the Jim Crow South. And so I saw things that you guys, if you think it's the problem now, but you should have seen some of the things that I saw coming up. White only drinking fountain, drinking water fountains on the middle of Canal Street restrooms that said white only and you know uh, you couldn't sit at the counter in the bus station you had to sit at the back and if you ordered something the waitress had to come to you because you were not allowed at the counter if you went to a place to get something ordered something uh some food or whatever just like mcdonald's invited us to think that was the way of life for black people we had to go to the window that's already in our neighborhood about uh Two city blocks down the road, there was a uh, there was a, a, a bar and restaurant, and uh, I was working as a as a kid, eleven years old, working at this little thing uh, body shop, cleaning up, sweeping around there, five dollars a week now, okay. Mm-hmm. And so my, uh, my my boss sent me to this little restaurant to get uh, some uh, root beer, canned root beer, rice root beer, and some moon pies for our snack. And so I go down there, he sent me down there, and uh, I knocked, I couldn't go upstairs, so I knocked on the door. And this big country-looking guy comes out there, pushed for what his persuasion was, and he uh, spit the water tobacco over my head. And he says the N-word to me, what do you want? And mm. even then, there was a little bit of resistance in me. I guess there was my, my greatest grandpa, Nat Turner, saying, you don't want nothing. Mm-hmm. So I responded, I don't want nothing. So when I get back to the place where I was sleeping at, the boss comes, he says, Theodore, where, where, where are our drinks? Where's our, our moon pies? I said, that guy was in work, and I didn't get nothing. So he said, what? Well, he comes over there. He gets over there to the restaurant. We come back. His shirt pocket is missing. His, his buttons broke off his shirt. And his wife comes out there and said, what happened to you? Uh, you know? And she said, she said, uh, he said, 
Nobody calls my N-word the N-word. <laughs> it was my honor, but that's how he thought. I was his N-word, <laughs> you know, but he was going to let nobody mm-hmm. else say that. So they had, mm-hmm. that was the mentality. That was the thinking and so forth. So that's the kind of world we're going. I saw boys, white boys, 16 years old, that my grandfather had to say, yes, sir, to and they call him by his name. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're talking about rage. <laughs> Before we put this target back in the tank, whenever somebody amps up a little bit because of their experiences, I want to end it up and say, well, let me show you some rage. And there's mm-hmm. some things that we saw and experienced during that era. And now they're more clandestine, you see, because, because we've gotten smarter at how to do it, how to be racist. But it's mm-hmm. still obvious. It, to walk in the shoes, you know, there there are people who, so for instance, I, you know, I, I did my time, my four years as a mental health therapist serving in a, a correctional facility, right? And so they don't know what it's like to be a black man counseling tortured black souls in these little boxes day after day after day after day. And of course, because I'm black, I got the roughest ones, you know, because I can handle it. I'm tough. Besides, they're my people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Day after day, day after day, day after day, listening to the the rackets, to the the sec the the, the sexual assaults, to to interview people who were sexually assaulted, to hear the threats to be raped, tossed out to female officers to see to to for a fire to go off in this cell, for this one over here to be throwing weapons out of his cell, and then me standing in front of this person who's saying I want to end my life and me having to block all of that out in order to deal with this one being right there. And all of them, all of them on a tier, except for maybe one or two, are black. That's not mm-hmm. supposed to mess with my mind. Mm-hmm. That's not supposed to tear me up. I see and I understand the system. I understand mm-hmm. that racism comes through institutions. It is racial pre- racial prejudice combined with institutional power. Without the institutional power, a person is just prejudiced. But when you got institutional right. power, now you can be racist. And I know that these men, countless scores black men, are no more than victims of that institutional power that these bigots still hold on to. Angola Plantation was the most prosperous plantation in all of the country, right here in Louisiana. Yeah, we set another record, go figure. And guess what? After the abolishment, after the Emancipation Proclamation, and they abolished slavery, they changed Angola uh, uh, Plantation to Angola Prison. And guess what? It is still the most prosperous plantation in all of America, filled with the same population, all black men. When they talk about crime in the urban communities, particularly impacting black and brown folk, you see, we always like to talk about the ending of life and the murders, but I see a lot of crimes being committed. Ain't nobody getting no sentences for that, but, but I see some crimes being committed in the bourgeoisie black community. We never talk about that. You know, attitude reflects leadership. And some of my more middle and upper class brothers and sisters don't need human hands. They need crab claws. And anywhere they go, anytime they enter a building, they need to be walking sideways because they some crabs. They're the crabbiest of the crabs. <laughs> and so they get in these positions, using us, 
boost us up, talking about, yeah, we got to go do this, we got to go do that. And then they get in those positions and they surrender, they acquiesce for white privilege and acceptance, leaving us in the exact same conditions we were before. That's why I I maintain the posture that I have because I can't be bought. I know they thought that I was Toby because my name is Harry and I graduated from LSU, but this here is Kunta. This here is Kunta. Kunta got the bachelor's degree. Kunta. Kunta got the master's degree. This here Kunta. Okay. I get that. I get all of that. And I thank God for there, there, there's a governor in my life that has taken me from my Kuntaism <laughs> and my desire to amalgamate that culture that I think is supreme because of some advantage that I may have. Thank God for that uh, spirit that he's given me. And believe you me, like I said, this is not somebody that I chose to be. It's somebody I became my affiliate with Christ. Don't let the smooth face, yeah, fool you. There is a, there is a rage, but it's a rage that's in tech because of the uh, in my life, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer. And, and so he helps us, and he leads us, he guides us, and he directs us. But we still can put up a good fight against injustices that are going on against us. And, and those people that are, that have this racial tendency in them, they need a transformation. They're taught racism is taught. It's not inherited, it's taught. Mm-hmm. Now it may be a heritage, but because it's probably in those generations, but it is something that is taught. And, if that person ever has an encounter with the Jesus that Paul met on Damascus Road, they will learn how to love everybody, and that will change. And I talk to people who couldn't stand black people, who is trying to make up for it. They never really know how. And I say, just be who God made you, you see. But I don't think I've ever hated white people to the degree to where I wanted to see all of them destroyed. And eliminated mm-hmm. from there. There's no, some no. that I really had a rage to walk. Yeah. What could I've seen them do? But never, never was that something that I make Do you tell your time what to do? Or does your time tell you what to do? Are you living or are you merely existing? Are you constantly reacting or are you responding to life? Mixed beliefs create confusion. Confusion creates a life of stagnation. Desire change? Visit www.becomeanoutlier.com slash about. That is www.becomeanoutlier, becomeanoutlier.com slash about, A-B-O-U-T, to start your journey. Stay tuned for more episodes and keep listening to the nocturnal therapist himself, Harry Turner.